like to read scripture for you this morning. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the return exiles, returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ereshadon, the king of Israel, excuse me, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged and the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribe counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Are we on? Hey, all right. Uh, hey, just a, a quick reminder that we have these wonderful uh, Nehemiah journals uh, that actually has the scripture in it and also a blank page next to it that you can take notes, write thoughts that God might give you by his word. And uh, they're in the back. If you don't have one yet, uh, men, you might not like this beautifully designed cover, you know, it might not be, okay, whatever. Uh, we have plain ones, black ones that you can have, and ladies, if you like this, here, honey, thank you for letting me show that, and I hope you have one. If you don't, go back and grab one. It's okay. Just grab one. Well, this morning, we come to uh, the book of Nehemiah, and uh, uh, the question might be asked, what are we going to learn uh, from this study of Nehemiah? And I'll just tell you, the bottom line is to learn that how to do God's work God's way. Amen. 
There are many ways to do things in churches, but not all of them are God's way. Man can put his hand to the plow and do his own work. The problem is those works do not last. They might even bring growth. They might bring numbers of people into the church. But that doesn't mean it's the Lord's work. When the Lord works, he doesn't start on the outside. He starts on the inside. And only the Lord can save people, correct? And so this is a wonderful study of how to do God's work, God's way. We're going to learn the kind of people that God uses when he chooses to do a work. And the people that he chooses are people like you and I. We're going to find that towards the end of this sermon. Also, the principles that need to be adhered to in order for God's work to be meaningful and lasting. It's clear in in this study what those principles are that we must walk in to do it God's way. You you can't compromise these things. Thirdly, the organization necessary to turn God's vision into a reality. We're going to learn how. This whole study is so vitally important for where our church is right now as we are on the precipice of launching into our first facility and property that we own. Praise God. This is outstanding that God has opened the door for us let me just tell you, in the process, the, the 45 days of diligence, due diligence ends next Friday, and there are still some things that need to take place. But I just want to speak a word about uh, Steve Wade, who has served as the point person for the 45 days of due diligence. Wow, what a work this man has done. You know, everybody here has something they bring to the table of the Lord to be used by the body of Christ. Everybody here has something. And I'm telling you, the Lord knew what he was doing when he chose Steve to be the point person, to get things lined up and ready in order for us to move forward in the process. I will tell you that we've come into some... How many of you have experienced when you purchase a home or purchase a property, there could be some surprises in the process? Okay, well, we have learned that there is a big surprise, and that is that the roof on this facility... Uh, This roof is 32 years old. It's a metal roof, so they're allowed to go longer. They can extend to 30 years. We're two years past that. We need to be praying that God will give us favor uh, on several fronts and that the estimate that comes in will be less than the estimate given in the inspection. I will not even tell you how much it was. Uh, and we do believe we've got several estimates coming in less, much less than that. But we also need to pray that God would give us favor in how we communicate this back with the seller. And uh, we just want God's will to be done. And uh, we need your prayer. I'm letting you in right now. We need prayer. God can do it. We're believing he's going to do it. But we, 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 nothing like putting it before the body so that we all share in the responsibility of what God is doing. Let me give you one more thing that we're going to learn in this study, and that is the commitment and the persistence of sacrifice necessary to see this project through. That's exactly what it took for Nehemiah and the Jews to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of the city. It took great commitment and persistent sacrifice. 
And believe me, there were a lot of obstacles that came up in their path. But they stayed with it. And God accomplished a miracle. They, they built this, these walls in how many days? Anybody know? Oh, that's homework then. you got to find out. You're going to be shocked when you find out. I'm talking about the walls of the whole city of Jerusalem. You're close. You are very close. So do your due diligence and understand that to do God's great work, it takes everybody working together, and it's going to take commitment and persistent sacrifice from all of us. So I want us to turn to, if you will please, uh, Scott read for us from Ezra. Just before Ezra, you have Second Chronicles. I want you to go to the last chapter. It's almost, it's not quite, but it's almost the last verse of the last chapter of Second Chronicles. Turn to Second Chronicles, chapter 36, verse 20. 20 uh, 36, 20 of Second Chronicles. It says these words. I, wanna, I want to establish a little more context for what we're going to read and study here in just a few moments out of the book of Nehemiah. So 2 Chronicles 36, 20, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. So Nebuchadnezzar took captive the Jews, took them in until, this is very important we see this between verses 20 and 21, until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths, all the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So the question has to be asked, when he hauled the Israelites off into captivity both from the northern kingdom to Assyria to the Assyrians and the southern kingdom by the Babylonians the question is was God done with the Jews I mean he he literally broke them up sent them off to foreign nations to other powers it was God done well um, no not by a long shot I want you to see this. Their suffering under the Babylonians didn't last forever because in 539 B.C., 539 B.C., there are four dates, by the way. Write these four. Well, I'll give you three. I'll give you a fourth later. Four dates that you need to know that will help you make sense of the book of Nehemiah, okay? Uh, let me give them to you. The first date I'll give you is 722 B.C., 722 B.C., that's the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. The fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to the Assyrians was 722 B.C. Then, in 586 B.C., you have the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah to the Babylonians. So 722, 586. And then in 539, the Babylonian Empire is swallowed up by the Medo-Persian Empire while the Jews are still in captivity in Babylonia. There is a fourth date, but we'll look at it in just one moment. So you've got 722, 586, 539. You might ask, what's the big deal in all that? Why does any of this matter here in 2023? Because it shows that God's plan and purpose 
will always be, will be fulfilled regardless of what nation has the power. Doesn't matter what happens around the globe, under whose kingship, authority, under what nation, it doesn't matter, none of it matters. Because our God is in control of all of it. He ordered up the Assyrians to take the northern kingdom into captivity. He ordered up the Babylonians 300 years later to take the southern kingdom into captivity. And he's now ordered up the Medo-Persian Empire to overcome the Babylonian Empire where the Jew, where Judah, the, the, the Jews in Judah that are in captivity are living. Proverbs 21.1, please write it in your little journal or write it in your notepad, wherever you write things. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Think about that. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And then the latter part, he turns it wherever he will. What does that tell you? There's not a single leader on the face of the earth today of any nation, of the most powerful nation on the earth, that is nothing but a stream of water in the hand of our great and mighty God. And our God will do it his way in the end. Psalm 33, 4, write it down, Psalm, 3, Psalm 33, 4 through 11. While you're trying to write that, let me take a little swig. Man, they just loaded me up with water. There's like eight of these under there. They must think I'm a drinker. I appreciate Erlene and her team and the, the great job they do in our church with hospitality, don't you? Amen. 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 That was a very weak clap. You, Helen, you let it. You did it. There we go. Good, good, good. Yeah. Okay. Let's read this. Psalm 33, 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Now listen. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses, literally springs beneath the earth's or the ocean's surface. Deep springs. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. You don't believe Genesis is literal? Well, the psalmist says it was literal. David thought it was literal. He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Listen to this. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. What is the United Nations to the Lord? Nothing. I'm not saying that everything they do is bad or whatever. It's not about politics here. I'm just saying I don't care who the person or the group is on the earth that's in power. God is in control. He brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart 
to all generations. If that doesn't lift your spirit this morning for what you might be going through in your life, to know that your God is totally in control, that he is both sovereign and he is absolutely providential in his actions. Everything has purpose and meaning. So 2 Chronicles 13 tells us that God takes the Babylonian kingdom out so that a new empire with a new king or new kings and a new authority can come into power while his people are still in captivity. He did this to provide an opportunity for the repatriation of his people under this new empire of leadership, under the Persian kings. God would free the Jews to return to, his, to the promised land and renew their relationship with God and rebuild the holy city and her walls. All of the devastation in Jerusalem, the temple, the city walls, listen, all of it was decimated. But God is at work and God is using his people to rebuild, to raise up a fallen city where his name will be great and they will worship the one true and living God. Now, remember, it is the people, the Jews, that brought this dreadful circumstance upon themselves. And God judged them for it and he's the one that placed them in 70 years of captivity. And now God is showing his mercy and grace by keeping his word to return them to their homeland, just as Jeremiah prophesied. So no matter how far you have drifted from God, how do we make this real for us today? No matter how far we've drifted from God, he loves us and he loves you so much that he will chasten or discipline you because of your rebellion and sin. And then if you'll turn and you will repent, God will provide for you a way back. You don't have to stay apart. You don't have to feel distant. God will receive you back from that life of sin and bring you into his place of rest. What is his place of rest? Salvation. Salvation. So no matter how far you've drifted, God loves and God redeems. Are you hearing that today? Some of you need to hear that today. So where we pick up the story is in this book of Ezra that Scott read, where most of the folks are in exile, except for a few who are living in the rubble of Jerusalem and the surrounding villages. And basically, the people living in the rubble at the, at, at, of this once proud nation are now saying, it's over. Look, there's no walls. Any enemy can walk right in and do whatever they want. There's no temple. There's nothing. This is at the beginning of Ezra, okay? And, and the massive people that were taken in captivity are now living 800 miles away. And they're saying, it's over. This is our new life. We've been given different names, Babylonian names, Persian names. They separated our children from us so they wouldn't remember us and they wouldn't remember our homeland. They've stolen all of our identities as tribes of Israel. We don't have the records now of the tribes, the 12 tribes. It was bad stuff, man. And they're like, it's done. we're done. It's all gone. But it's never over until God says it's over. 
And by the way, that day hasn't happened yet. Jesus will bust that sky wide open and return. And that is when it's over. On that day, every knee will bow. From Oprah Winfrey to every single actor, actress, rock star, musician, every atheist, every philosopher that stands up against the will and the word of God, every one of them will bow down before Jesus and say, He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But that day hadn't happened yet. So God's still very much working this plan. Now we come to to Ezra chapter 1. You have to know Ezra to know Nehemiah. In Ezra 1, look at verse 1 again. In the year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be filled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia. The Lord, who did it? The Lord of of the king of the spirit, stirred up by the spirit, the Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Now, this is a pagan king. But somehow, someway, God put fear of the Lord in this man's heart because it was time and it was the right kingdom to rise up. And God said, thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia. This is what the king said. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all of his people, all the Jews living in captivity, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with uh, beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. You talk about favor. A pagan king is now giving homage to the one true and living God, the God of the Jews. And he's releasing the Jews. And not only that, he's saying, I want you folks to take the gold and the silver and everything else you need to rebuild the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Talk about a turnaround. Only God can do that. Change the heart of a pagan like that. And we're not even dealing with pagans when we talk about the property that we want to purchase. These are Christian people. We're just asking God to do a miraculous thing and help us be able to put a new roof on that place. Amen? Amen. Praise God. So the Medo-Persian authorities began to feel concern for God and for his glory, and they began to release some of the Jews from captivity. Now, I want to put something on the screen for you behind me. We'll leave it up so that you can actually copy it onto, your, uh, onto one of the pages of your journal. Uh, you see the sequence. Is it up? Yes, good. Am I blocking it? No, good. Okay. Uh, you have a sequence, a date, a scripture, a Jewish leader or leaders, and a Persian ruler. So there were three waves that took place over a long period of time. Three waves of Jews who were released from captivity to go back to the promised land. The first wave occurred, as you can see here, it's spoken of in Ezra chapter 1, 
1 through 6, okay? That happened in 538 B.C. The two leaders that God used in that first wave was Zerubbabel and Yeshua, or Yahshua, or Jesus. Not, not Jesus, the Son of God, but that was his name, okay? So, uh, this is under the Persian ruler Cyrus. He's the one that we just read about, who God moved upon this man to let them go back and gave them everything they need to rebuild the temple. Okay, now, the second wave was 458 B.C. The scripture is Ezra 7 through 10, and the leader is Ezra. And the leader of the Persian Empire at that time was Artaxerxes. If you don't want to write it, just put Art. King Art, okay? The third wave is 445 B.C., and now we go into the book of Nehemiah. It records the third wave. And Nehemiah is the leader, and Art is still the king. Okay? So as you can see, in the first six chapters of Ezra, we have the first wave of the Jews returning. Now, at this time in history, God wants his story to be told through the lives of one people, that is, the Jews. That is why he disciplined them for 70 years, to get them their hearts broken where he could shape them again into his people because they had so drifted away from God before he hauled them away. And so that's why he did what he did. Now, they're coming back, and he's saying, be my people. But interestingly enough, as Scott read, turn to Ezra chapter 4, verse 1 again. Ezra 4, 1. By the way, we have a future singer right over here in our church. Amen. Be on that worship team. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple of the, to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Let me stop and say this to you. So these are the people that the Assyrians, after they took out the northern kingdom and captivated the northern kingdom, they brought in to that region people from other lands under their great empire. They wanted to completely blend the promised land with every type of person available. These people have been living in the promised land since that captivity took place, and they were re uh, focused to this area. So that's what that's about. They want to now help because they say, we've been worshiping your God. But look at the Jews who've just come back from captivity who are given this assignment of rebuilding the house of the Lord. Look what their response is. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. You have nothing to do with building the house to our God. I want to say to you that at that time in history, uh, God only wanted to reveal himself through the people who were the Hebrews. He, he wanted the world to see how great he was through the Jewish people how they lived, how they worshiped, how they fought in battle without raising a single hand, 
marching seven times around a fortified city with huge walls and then blowing a trumpet and walls crumbling. God wanted Israel to be an obedient child and teach the world how great God really is. He wasn't interested at that time in lowering the standard and letting other people who have some kind of a quasi-worship experience taking a little bit of Jewish sacrifice and a little bit of this over here and a syncretistic approach come up with a new way of worship of God. And when the Jews saw these people saying these things, they said, no, you are not one of us. We are the ones to build, not you. Now, I will tell you, things have changed in our day. They've changed. It happened when the church was started when the early church began, God had opened the doors not only for the Jews, but for the who? Gentiles. So that all people of all nations, of all languages, could come to God as he calls them and repent of their sins and be saved. That's the day we live in. Amen? Yet, even though that is true and we need to live it out by sharing the gospel every day with everybody we meet... But let me say this to you. The church of Jesus Christ in the New Testament is not a church to be mingled with unbelievers leading the church, having things the way they like it in church. Church is ekklesia in the Greek. It means the called out ones. It, it, it's, the church is made up solely of people who have been called by God out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That is the church. Do we have unchurched or unsaved people who come to church? Yes, and we want them to come. But today in many churches, when they come, the church has gone out of their way to try to make church really appealing to the unchurched, to the unsaved. Why? Because we want them to like us. And what's behind that, the underlying issue is they really think that they play a part in the salvation of people. That if we can treat them a certain way and we can have the right attractional model, if we can just do things the way that people want it in the world, then they'll, they'll, they'll get saved. Have we forgotten we are saved by grace through faith? It is a gift of God, not of, not of man. If it was a gift of man, we would boast in it. The church, even today, listen, today we worship the Lord. We didn't change the words so that unsaved people might feel a little more comfortable. We use the word repentance. We use the word sin. We call people to redemption, to be saved, as the scripture teaches. Our, our, our songs must reflect biblical doctrine, not man-made thoughts and opinions. And so here's what happens. Unsaved people come, and here's the purpose of church. They see true believers 
in the worship of the one true God. And it either draws them by the Holy Spirit, they're drawn towards it, or they're like, it doesn't appeal to my flesh, that's nothing I want. And they go away. Listen, you'd be surprised how many pastors, how many elders of churches don't understand this. Church is not to be made up of unchurched, unsaved people getting what they want. It is about the believers of God worshiping the one true God and inviting those who are not saved to see it as the Holy Spirit calls them and draws them to salvation. That is what Vero Bible Fellowship is about. From day one, that's what we've been about. And there's not going to be a change in the direction. We must be about being true believers in the true worship of God by spirit. And then we must be about reaching lost people with love, compelling them to come in that they might receive and see what true church looks like. Amen? Make sense? Okay. Verse 4, when the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid. See, so, so, so they said, you can't help us build. You're not, you're not one of us. And so look at the response of those people. The people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build the temple. And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, the king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, and in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. These people are trying to start a new, they're going to raise up their religion and do it all over again. They're going to worship God. They're going to build a temple for him. And this king had no clue what Cyrus had said, that God wanted him to have them go back and build it. So now he's listening to these people that live in the promised land who are against the building going up. How can you in one moment say that you're making sacrifices to the same God because you worship the same God, and in the next minute, blocking the rebuilding of the temple? Because you're never one, you were never one of them to begin with. So Ahasuerus brought the whole thing to a crashing halt all over again. This happened. So they're doing what God called them to do, and it stopped. The work stopped. No more. As a result of that, The word comes back to Nehemiah. Now we go to Nehemiah chapter 1. Hallelujah, we're finally there, you're saying. This is where Nehemiah picks up in chapter 1. The building project has stopped. So as we look at chapter 1, let's look at the who, the when, the where, and the what questions of the first three verses in Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah 1, 1 through 3, let me read it for you. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. In other words, of the Jews who weren't hauled off into captivity, but who still lived in the land. And also asking about the city, the city itself. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. 
So let's, let's, let's just do a little, this is a little preacher study, okay? This is inductive study. This is how we prepare a sermon, okay? It's how we've come to, the, to exegete the text. I'm just going to give you a little brief here. Okay, so, so who is it he's talking about? The answer, Nehemiah. What do we know about Nehemiah? Well, he's the son of Hakaliah. Don't you have a lot of information now about Nehemiah? Don't you feel better about that? That explains everything, right? Uh, no, we know nothing from that. We haven't got a clue who Hekeliah was, so that doesn't shed any light on who Nehemiah was. All we know is Nehemiah was never mentioned again anywhere else in the whole Bible. Well, that doesn't help either. So he's Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now, obviously, God knows who Nehemiah is, but we're left in the dark. Not much of a resume. What's your name? Nehemiah. Who's your father? Hekeliah. What have you done? Nothing. We don't see it. What did he do? Well, what are his credentials? We haven't a clue so far. Nehemiah, how do you expect to get a job when you have no credentials? So this is really a tough situation. Here's a guy whose name appears nowhere in the whole of Scripture reminding us of something, and that is this. Pedigree means nothing to our God. God is taking an obscure, insignificant person that's never mentioned anywhere else in the whole Bible. We don't even have good things to say about the guy, just that he's Hakaliah's son, and we don't have a clue who Hakaliah is. And that's the guy that God chose to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is that spiritual endowment matters far more than educational advancement. Spiritual endowment matters far more than background. Spiritual endowment matters far more than any kind of legacy that we might have that is related to our status in the minds of other people. None of that stuff matters here. All that matters is God gave him the calling to do what he's about to do. But we're so consumed with all these other credentials that people have we don't think something can be done unless it's done by somebody who's really qualified. I've got to tell you, that might work in this society. That might be true. But in God's economy, it's not true. In God's economy, you, the one here today who doesn't think they have anything to offer, they look at everybody around them and say, I can see what you can do. I can see how God uses you. I can see this. I can see that. They can't see it in themselves. But in God's economy, God does see your part. He does see how he can use you for the cause of his glory. Isn't that what some of you feel? You feel like you're really not the right person to really get involved and do anything? You got to get over that. Get off that train. You need to join God in his work. And doing God's work God's way means he will use insignificant ordinary people why why does he use ordinary people because he is an extraordinary god you don't need to be extraordinary isn't that hey the pressure's off now i know some of you are thinking well i i don't know i'm a little extraordinary <laughs> you're really not just turn to somebody who knows you 
and ask them how extraordinary you are. Just ask your spouse. They'll be glad to tell you. You're ordinary. We're all ordinary in this church. I don't have power over the elders. I'm ordinary. I'm just one of the elders. All decision-making comes out of the collective time of decision-making from all the elders. I don't have more say. I don't get to do it my way. There are many times that I saw it differently. It's okay. It's God's work. None of us here are extraordinary. But you serve an extraordinary God. If you could just have enough faith to believe that your God is extraordinary and say, Lord, I will join you in this work that you're doing. I don't know what my role is, but I know this. You have called me to participate. And you just do whatever God's called you to do. So who is it? Nehemiah. When is it? He says Kislev. When's Kislev? Or who is Kislev, you know? Uh, Kislev is the month of December. So Nehemiah, in the month of December, you say, how do you, how do you know that? I read it. And, and so either we believe what it says or we don't. I happen to believe it. I believe this is the one true source of God's spoken word, God's word. Um, I really am not interested in anybody in the room telling me what the Holy Spirit told you until I know that what the Holy Spirit's telling you is in here. When I know it comes from here, then I'm listening. Otherwise, who cares? You know, everybody's got a belly button, you know. Everybody's got an opinion. I'm not interested in your opinion. I am interested in God's word. Amen? Who is it? Nehemiah. When is it? December. Where was it? 800 miles from Nehemiah's deepest concern and burden. He is overwhelmed by what he hears about his people back in Jerusalem and about the city in being decimated. He's hurting over his people. Next week, I'll tell you where we're going to go. We're going to go into the body of this chapter 1 where Nehemiah prays. Next week will be on prayer. And it's a powerful, powerful text to look at and read and understand more about prayer and how we ought to be implementing prayer in our daily lives. So what is he doing? What was Nehemiah, this man who's ordinary, doing while living in Persia? Well, the last sentence of the last verse of chapter 1. Now I was cupbearer to the king. I was cupbearer to a pagan king. So Nehemiah carried cups. Doesn't sound like much of a job, does it? But that depends on who you're carrying cups for. In his case, carrying a cup for the king. And you say, well, uh, what makes that so special? Well, you're the guy that has to drink whatever's in the cup before the king drinks it. Why? Because it's possible that that cup has been poisoned. You're the guy that when the chef of the royal palace says to the king, tonight I'd like to serve you prime rib of beef. And the king looks over and says, Nehemiah, get after it. You take the first bite. And Nehemiah would take the bite to see if it was poisoned. If it was, uh, 
Nehemiah ceases to exist, but long live the king. That was his job. So I guess if you like high-risk jobs that eat well, you want to be a cupbearer. That's what Nehemiah was. Now, he could not have been in a more strategic place for God to use them than cupbearer to the king. Because the, cup, or because the king saw the cupbearer as someone who was willing to take the hit. That would endear you a little bit to your cupbearer. And he had the ear of the king of Persia. At that time, the greatest nation on the face of the greatest empire, actually, on the face of the earth. This makes it very special. So here's an ordinary guy with an obedient heart and a genuine desire to be available to God. And God says, I'm going to use you, and I'm going to use you out of the position that I placed you. I put you in that position for a purpose. Whatever your position is, you say, I'm nothing but a housewife. Are you kidding me? Do you know <laughs> it's the hardest job in the whole world, especially if you have kids? I mean, really? Who? What doctor spends 24-7 with the patient? Who has to be able to understand every math, every subject taught in elementary school and has to be able to show discernment for health purposes and reasons, who will entertain the children, who will teach the children, who will guide the children, who will feed the children. I'm just going to tell you, I don't care. You could be, you know, a, 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 you could serve as a female. I knew a lady, one of the early ladies, first ladies to ever serve on Wall Street as a broker, a woman. She was one of the first. And I'm telling you right now, that role that she served in is not greater than what a housewife does when she cares for her kids. Amen. The amount of time and energy put into that. Can I hear an amen? amen. Can we support our mothers and our, those who serve? So whatever position you think is insignificant, I'm telling you right now, in God's economy, he will use it. It is very significant to him. There's not a person in this room that doesn't matter to God, that God doesn't see and won't use. So here you have it. You have the introduction into Nehemiah with verses 1 through 3. Can I ask you a question as we close this down? Are you prepared to enlist in the army of the Lord at Vero Bible Fellowship for the days that lie ahead of us as God takes us in a, on a journey into a milestone event, having our property, our own place of lighthouse for the community, for this region of our state. Are you prepared to enlist in that army? And if you're prepared to do that, let me tell you what it will take from you to embark on the days ahead. And also, just to stay with this study, because this study is going to bring this stuff out. So if you don't like what I'm saying, you're not going to like this book. But let me just tell you, here's what it is. We the people at VBF must resolve to prepare prayerfully for the study of this book. Next week, we'll get involved in that prayer focus. Number two, we must resolve to attend regularly for the study of God's word and the worship of our God. Number three, we must resolve to listen carefully to what God is saying. 
Do not listen simply as a congregation. Listen subjectively, because I can promise you the Holy Spirit's work in us is subjective. Just as it's corporate, it's, it's to each and every one of us individually. Number four, we must resolve to apply what we learn from Nehemiah obediently and zealously, irrespective of the cost to my preconceived notions, to my personal finances, to my time, to my materials, to my schemes, to my dreams. you got to lay all of that down at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, what are you doing and how do you want me to participate in your great plan? I am going to be obedient and zealous in my effort to join you and your people. That's what it's going to take. And so I, I just want to leave you with that. By God's grace, by God's love, may we be able one day to look back upon this series at this time in our history and genuinely see it as a watershed moment in the life of Vero Bible Fellowship. That's how significant this study is. That's how significant. I hope that you'll be part of it. We're going to end our time. I want to first close this with prayer, and then I'm going to invite Marshall Pennell to come. And he's going to share with you. He's one of our elders. He's going to share with you some information that's vitally important for you to hear. Okay? Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you so much that you are calling us out of ourselves and into a fellowship. An opportunity to be your church and join you in your plans, your way. That goes every day that we live, Lord. You, you want us to come out of our flesh, out of our self, out of our self-interest, and join you in your plan. May that now begin to, to just really rise in our hearts over the next few weeks as we study the book of Nehemiah. We thank you for your word. It is the only word that provides power and life for us. We ask that you would do your work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.